Almost 12 months ago, we talked about a lapidary machine. Uh, I introduced the idea with this quote. This is a quote from our retired missionary, uh, Dan Bolin. And he said this, when our girls were young, we bought a lapidary machine. It's a device used to polish stones. We filled the cylinder with jagged rocks, sand, and water, then set the machine on the front porch and turned it on. Slowly but steadily, the motor rotated the cylinder over and over and over and over. A few weeks later, we opened the case and marveled at the transformation. The rough, jagged edges of the rocks had been worn down, leaving beautiful, polished stones. We all, Dan writes, have rough edges and need some burrs knocked off, something the Apostle Paul explains in Colossians 3.16. Close quote. The body of Christ can help us get the rough edges off of each other so that we are all smooth stones, useful rocks in God's work. Colossians chapter 3, 16 explains it. I'd like you to read it with me. Now, we're going to read it together piece by piece. Colossians 3, 16 has four big ideas. So we're just going to read it together, big idea by big idea. So let's, let's start here all together. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. Idea number two. In all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, idea three, through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God, and now the idea number four, with gratitude in your hearts. Thank you. In many ways, a church is a lapidary machine. Members of a church scrape and polish each other with these four big ideas so that no stone is left unturned. And that's been our annual vision for this year. No stone unturned. Now, when the elders and I set out this vision, we had no idea about the breadth and depth of opportunities for refinement that this year would offer. During this wild and woolly year, as you can imagine, I have received a number of notes like this one. Uh, this is a direct quote. Someone wrote me, dude, the next annual theme needs to be something like how to handle unexpected riches. Yeah. I can't, <laughs> amen. I can't take any more refining. And then he went on and said, seriously, it's been a great gift to be thinking all year that these challenges are part of No Stone Unturned. I do think we're more prepared and more useful to God, so carry on. And I've gotten a few letters containing some form of this question. Wayne, I memorized Colossians 3.16. I'm on board for both shaping and being shaped by my fellow Christians. Can you give more specifics on how that best happens? Close quote. Twelve months later, I think it's finally time to answer that excellent question. I saved up today's lesson all year long, thinking this was the best way to, to cap out and close No Stone Unturned. The answer to that question, that wonderful question, is found in the one another statements of Scripture. Commands like love each other, serve each other, instruct one another, submit to one another. These run throughout the New Testament, and they give a perfect playbook for how to live so that no stone remains unturned. There are, in case you don't know, there are 59 one another statements in the New Testament. That's almost 60 exhortations of Scripture to actually do something with and toward another person. Uh, writer Andrew Mason shares this. I think it's an excellent thought about the one another's. He says, these are behaviors that we may do out of an overflow, may meaning that's how we're empowered, not you can choose not to. These are, these are behaviors we may do out of an overflow of our relationship with Jesus, but they're not things we do solely unto Jesus. Other people must be involved in order to fulfill the one another's. Close quote. And my old seminary uh, friend, the guy I went to school with, Andy Stanley, he said this. This is really a nice summary. The primary activity of the church is to be one anothering one another. 
I like that so much I put it in your notes. Um, take a look. If you're, uh, if you're with us remotely online, you should be able to pull up the notes. You, you'll probably want them today. There's a lot of scripture in there. Uh, if you're here, you've got it in the bulletin. Take a look. Uh, the primary activity of the church is to be one anothering one another. Now, as I see them, and this is not scripture, this is just Wayne's understanding and analysis. I think the 59 one another's of the New Testament can be grouped into four categories. I think they have four major categories. The first group are the commands to love each other. And if you look at this little illustration, all of the others, all the other groupings flow out of this big command that because of the cross, you love each other. Here are the love directives as they're recorded in the New Testament. Love one another, John 13, 34, twice, and then and again in chapter 13, twice in chapter 15, all spoken by Jesus, a command, love one another. Uh, Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Romans 13, love one another. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, make your love increase and overflow for each other. 1 Thessalonians 4, love each other as you're taught by God to love. 1 Peter 3, love one another deeply from the heart. And then John, back to his favorite theme about love, five times in 1 John and again in 2 John verse 5, love one another. Let's choose one passage. We don't have time to do them all. Let's choose one passage that I think speaks well for them all. Let's dive into that 1 Thessalonians 4 passage. Open your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You'll find it in your New Testament, amazingly, just before 2 Thessalonians, um, right after Colossians. 1 Thess 4, and let's read verse 9. This is the one another command in verse 9. About brotherly love, you don't need me to write you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Now, the Greek here is really telling. Uh, the Koine Greek had four words for love, two of which appear in this passage, in this text. Philadelphia is brotherly affection. Philadelphia is committed care among people who are bonded. They're bonded in a nation or in an association. Um, Philadelphia is a gracious love that is thoughtful even when there is disagreement. Uh, Philadelphia is really difficult. It is a difficult thing to live, even within the same church or the same country or association. It's tough to show grace to people given how stinky human beings are, right? Have you noticed how much our modern culture struggles with Philadelphia? Even people, even people who belong to the same country and, and desire the same general welfare, they are snotty to each other. They are profane. They, they have running mouths and closed ears. We would rather laugh at other people. We would rather cancel them out, or we would rather curse at them than listen to them. And that is especially true if the others don't share our orthodoxy of the moment. Our current situation is so bad that a few leaders that I know issued a response. Um, I, I really like it. They call it the Philadelphia Statement. Um, the paper's based on the Greek idea of brotherly love. Let me, let me just read you part of the Philly Statement. This is just a part of it. I hope you'll look it up uh, online. But here's a part. If we seek a brighter future, we must relearn a fundamental truth. Our liberty and our happiness depend upon the maintenance of a public culture in which freedom and civility coexist where people can disagree robustly, even fiercely, yet treat each other as human beings, and indeed as, as fellow citizens, not mortal enemies. Liberty is meaningless where the right to utter one's thoughts and opinions has ceased to exist, Frederick Douglass declared in 1860. Indeed, our liberal democracy is rooted in and dependent upon the shared understanding that all people have inherent dignity and worth and that they must be treated accordingly. All God's people said... Uh, the statement goes on. A society that lacks comity, 
and allows people to be shamed or intimidated into self-censorship of their ideas and considered judgments, that, that society will not last long. As Americans, we desire a flourishing, open marketplace of ideas, knowing that that is the fairest and most effective way to separate falsehood from truth. Accordingly, dissenting and unpopular voices, be they of the left or the right, must be afforded the opportunity to be heard." Close quote. Now, for full disclosure, you need to know I was one of the early signatories to that statement. And it has now, in the last few weeks, been signed by 10,000 Americans from all religions, all backgrounds. I hope, I sincerely hope that it spreads until 300 million Americans have signed that Philadelphia statement and commit to live by it. And again, it takes commitment. That's why God says in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, be devoted to one another. That's commitment in phileo, in brotherly love. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, love, phila, same, same word, one another, yes, it's heart. Love one another deeply from the heart. That's, that's what our text is calling for when it exalts brotherly love, Philadelphia. And 1 Thessalonians 4 shows how that happens, how this is even possible. It happens through God's instruction in agape love. Look at, verse, look at verse 9 again. About brotherly love, you don't need me to write to you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. The only way we can have love for other people with whom we are associated is that we are trained by God in an even deeper kind of love, agapao. Agape love. Agapao is the most rare and most exalted kind of love. Here it is in a nutshell, and I, and I apologize, this is too simple, but I think it's the best way to remember agape. Agape is love that sacrifices self for the other. Uh, almost 100 years ago, Dr. William Barclay summarized it beautifully as he had a tendency to do. He says, agapao is the quintessentially Christian word. This is what Christians are all about. Think about Jesus. He cared more for us than his own rights, Right? So he sacrificed himself. Even so, Christians sacrifice willingly for the good of the brethren. All those texts we look at, the love one another commands, every one of those comprise agapao, some form of agape. One another's have to start here. If you're going to live out the one another's of Scripture, you've got to start with agape, with self-sacrificing love. Even the world recognizes the primacy of this. The importance of self-sacrificing love for others. One of, the, one of the hit songs of 2015 was by the rock band Shinedown, uh, a song written by Scott Stevens and, and Brett Smith. Uh, some of the lyrics, now, some of the lyrics of the song, How Do You Love, are really off base. But this chorus, folks, this is spot on. This is agapao love. Look, look what they wrote. They said, no one gets out alive. Every day is do or die. The one thing you leave behind is how did you love? How did you love? Philadelphia and agape. Now, look up here. I want us to examine one more word in the original language. Theodidaktos. Theodidaktos is a, it's a, a hapax legomena. It, it appears only here in the Bible. It's a word that was made up expressly for this passage. Uh, as people like to do in languages like Koine Greek and German, you take existing words and you smash them together and you make a new word, right? So they took the word for God, theos, and they took a word for instruction. We still say didactic. For, for instruction. So they, they took didakos and, and theos, they put it together and it means taught by God. It's, it's one word, taught by God, right? Now, theodidaktos, here's something you need to know. It is a loaded idea. You see, back in the major prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah both made a very, very bold prediction. They promised that there would be a new covenant where people, get this, would be directly instructed by God himself. 
Jesus agreed with this uh, when he was teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. You can look it up. He, he, he reiterated this same idea. Theodidaktos means God leads a person to be instructed, to, to be committed in how to love. Okay, take the whole verse together and we see that God teaches members. Jesus calls us a new community, a new covenant. He teaches us how to love. Agape love that he gives us flows out to members of the redeemed community expressed as Philadelphia love. And this is a trained lifestyle practice. It is something we train in. Listen again. Please focus on God's word and leave Hollywood out of your thinking of love. The agapao love that God provides leads to love through theodidactos. It is a practical, trained choice. Your Philadelphia, my Philadelphia for each other, it has nothing to do with how we feel. Absolutely nothing to do with feelings. It has everything to do with training. And I know, I know, that prompts a question that you're asking in your favorite uh, Ben Grimm voice. Um, He's made of rock. Get it? Rock. Anyway, uh, Ben Grimm, who was called The Thing in the comic books, the Fantastic Four comic books, you're you're asking in your Ben Grimm imitation, what if I just feel dead toward my brother or my sister? I just, I feel dead inside. It's a good question, Ben. Good question, Thing. Now listen, you may have a heart of stone toward someone. It may even be completely understandable. It may be completely understandable that you are, you are cut off, you are hurt, you are angry, you are scared, and that is fine. But aren't you grateful that God loves the unlovable? Because after all, Ben, you're an unlovable thing. We are to give as we have received. In our souls, God teaches us agapao. He develops undeserved unconditional sacrificial love in us and and we then share that in the redeemed community we show philadelphia to all that's what the bible means when it tells us to love one another all of god's things said amen Amen. although you should have said it like amen that would have been even better now this is really cool this is this is i think it's really cool if you look at this idea of the groupings the one another's that that idea of love is expressed it's lived out in the other three categories of one another commands so we're told to love one another because of the cross that leads us to get along and there's a whole bunch of the commands that have to do with getting along and it teaches us to serve each other and to edify or build up one another Here's how love fleshes out in God's church. We, we get along and we edify and we serve. On the right side of your notes are some of the verses that I group as the get along group of one another commands. They wouldn't all fit in the notes, but, but remember, every, they'll all be on the slides. Every slide every week is available at FriscoBible.com. Okay? Here's the commands about getting along. Mark chapter 9, Jesus said, be at peace with each other. Romans chapter 12, honor one another above yourselves. Uh, Romans 12 again, live in harmony with one another. 1 Peter 3 emphasizes that again. Romans 14, stop passing judgment on one another. Romans 15, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you. 1 Corinthians 11, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. Uh, And then four times in the Bible it says greet one another with a holy kiss, which is, is pretty much akin to a modern handshake, being willing to really show fellowship with somebody. Um... Be, have equal concern, 1 Corinthians 12, for each other. Galatians 5, if, if you keep on biting and devouring each other, Paul says, you will be destroyed by each other. Galatians 5 again, let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. 
a verse that my mother quoted to me often in relation to my little brother. Uh, Ephesians 4, be patient, bearing with one another in love, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. And then Colossians 3 adds this, forgive each other whatever grievances you may have against one another. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, Ephesians 5. Philippians 2, one of the most beautiful and convicting passages ever written. In humility, consider others as better than yourselves. Colossians 3, do not lie to each other. Bear with each other. James chapter 4, do not slander each other. James 5, don't grumble against each other. And 1 Peter 5, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. One of the founding pastors of this church was Mark Mattei. Uh, Mark spent years leading wilderness adventures, something he loved to do. Pastor Mark especially liked to get people in canoes on a river. Mark used to say he loved canoeing because people have to learn to work in harmony when they are in a canoe. And he told me this once, a really brilliant quote. He said, Wayne, people who get along, get along. And what he meant by that was people who can get along in harmony in the canoe, they progress much more rapidly downstream. So what is your rowing like? How well do you get along? I pulled together a little focus group this last week. I got 10 people, uh, 10 wonderful godly people. I pulled them together and I gave them a list of all the one another commands that have to do with getting along in Scripture. And each of these awesome volunteers was asked this, place a check mark beside every one of these commands with which you have struggled over the past year. Okay. I want to show you the results. These were fascinating to me. Uh, there were a whole bunch of them checked, but five of the ten, which is significant, said, in the past year I've struggled with being patient, bearing with one another. And five also struggled with honoring one another above yourselves. Six of ten struggled with forgiving each other whatever. Six of ten struggled with stop passing judgment on one another. Six of ten, which is significant, don't grumble against each other. And then this is absolutely mind-blowing. Ten of ten, ten of ten said, I have in the last year had a hard time with living in harmony with one another. Isn't that amazing? Ten of ten. By the way, th this one, don't grumble, that had the most comments. Uh, there was a little space they didn't have to, but they could write in comments. My favorite one of the comments read this. It said, uh, don't grumble. Hmm, did my wife or my boss put you up to this? <laughs> and I... I I grabbed him and said, neither, it was God. So, let's, um, let's run with that. Look at God's Word in James chapter 5, verse 9. Let's learn how to get along together better by eliminating grumbling. Okay, let's take that one. Uh, James chapter 5, verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now, grumble in the Greek is stenadzo. It's your fancy word for the day, boys and girls. You get to say stenadzo on the count of three. One, two, three. Senadzo. It's a word you'll still hear in your life. We still use it in modern medicine. Uh, when, when your spine, when, when my friend Colleen had to have spinal surgery, look, you're sitting up like that right now, just thinking about it. When, when your spine is, is being squeezed, it's, it's called a stenosis, stenadzo, and it, it causes pain. Um, if your heart has a stenosis, a stenadzo place where it narrows, uh, especially if it's in the aorta, your doctor will listen and he'll hear something funny, and what will he call it? He'll say you have a heart Murmur, right? It's a heart murmur. That's, that's what that is. Um, it, 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 stenazo is something that narrows so that the pitch changes, so that there's whining. When, when you see a beautiful big um, pipe organ, the, the pipes that make the, the highest notes are just as big as the, as the others, but inside they narrow. The, the air jetting through has a narrowing that makes, it, that makes it higher, it makes it whine. 
by using the word sanazo, here's what James is saying. He's saying, don't whine. Don't let your heart get narrow to the point where you're murmuring. Now, the judge at the door, that part of the verse, this is, a, this is an image Jesus really liked to use. Peter employs it as well. First um, Peter chapter 4, they, and he's talking about people who slander you, they will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. The painful idea here is that when, when one of us grumbles, that person incurs judgment on self. The one who slanders, and I have, and horribly you probably have too, will be judged by God himself. And that gets, I want you to think here, that gets to the heart of why we grumble. It is a flawed but very stubborn logic that leads to grumbling. Here, here's how it flows, okay? It begins with this. Something happens that we don't like. Uh, we're wounded, we're disappointed. And by the way, this can be completely legitimate, biblically valid. It can be very painful. And, and when we stop and we really think through Scripture, we realize that, that God loves us and He is in that pain with us. But sometimes, okay, lots of times, we don't go through that exercise and engage with the God who is with us in our pain. Instead, we step up toward grumbling. And the next step is we just forget. We forget that God's engaged at all. In fact, we really forget that He is the judge and that He is going to judge whatever has been done to us or by us, right? Sometimes, by the way, I didn't have room to put this in the slide, but sometimes this step right here is joined with another really ugly thing, which is where we suddenly uh, decide that, um, that, that we have no role to play in making things right. Uh, it's just be, it's beyond our control. We can't do anything about it. So, so there's no God who's going to judge, and there's no way we're supposed to be a part, which is almost always a lie. That steps us up to the third step, and that is we feel powerless, and we ignore our connection to the judge. If you're a believer in Christ, you are connected by God's grace to this judge forever. We forget that. We're just powerless. There's no, God is not good, or He's not God. He's not in charge. There's nothing that can be done. So the only thing left is to step things up to where we grumble. We whine about those humans whom we see as ultimately responsible. We have actually taken God off His throne and put a human being on it. That's why we grumble. If you will walk any, any murmur of your life, any grumbling of your life through that flowchart, you will see the folly. So let's take, let's take a common one. Why, did, why does the child murmur against his parent? Why, why do parents grumble about their kids or their, or their grandkids? It's because we're hurt, Right? And that hurt gets taken out of the context of God's sovereignty. So, so we, we, we decide that we're not, there's no God. We can't really remember that He's in charge. And a false powerlessness and sometimes a self-righteousness steps that up until we get into human judgment. And we become grumbling machines, whining, complaining. This must stop. If we're going to make any progress downriver together, it has to stop. Grumbling is incredibly destructive. Let me tell you a story. I one time consulted with an organization that had serious morale problems. And they called me in. A friend of mine uh, was on the board, and they called me and asked if I would come see what was going on. So I did what consultants do. And I met with a lot of people and charged a lot of money. And, and I'm kidding. I didn't charge a lot of money. And, um, and it was pretty simple. Uh, it wasn't very long into it, and I went ahead and met with everybody. And it became clear that here was the, the main core of their problem was the number two executive in this company was continually grumbling about the number one. And, and so I, I met with the board. I met with the two executives. I said, this has got to stop. This is going to kill you guys. Valid, invalid, this is, this is not healthy. They, um, they wouldn't listen to me. And so a couple of years later, you've probably seen this happen, right? 
they fired executive number one because of the complaints about executive number two. And then, can you see this coming? I know, you've, you've lived in business a while, you can see this coming. Do you, anybody want to guess what they did? What did they do with number two? They promoted him and put him in number one's position. And right then, I, I knew, I felt very confident what would happen, and it did. Six months later, I get a call from number two asking me if I can please help. I said, what's the problem? He said, everybody who works for me is grumbling about me all the time. Astonishing. Well, that organization is not doing well, so it's not funny. To get along, we have got to stop the infectious evil that is grumbling. Got to. And many of us struggle with that command. Remember, remember my focus group? The thing they listed as their number one problem, 10 out of 10, living in harmony with one another. Here's the, here's the one another command in Scripture. I'm going to put it in context. Romans 12, uh, 16 through 18. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. To live in harmony does not require unanimity, right? Enforced union only works for robots, and it doesn't even really work for them. Harmony, do you, do you know what harmony is? Think, think about music. Harmony is differing frequencies that work together, and they, work, they balance each other so that it, it produces a, a beautiful sound. There's a lovely sound to the ear because of the differing frequencies. That's what needs to happen. And God shows us how to pull it off. Look at the text. This is, it's just so simple. Look, God says, you want to live in harmony. Okay, here's how. Don't be proud. Associate with humble folks, Right? Don't think you're wise. Refuse to repay evil. Carefully consider and do what is universally good and live at peace, at least as much as it's up to you. All right, so think, think. When I declare, as probably all of us have declared, I just can't get along with those people. I cannot live in harmony with that group that God has put me with. What am I really saying? What I'm saying is, I'm admitting there is a small chance, about a 12% about a chance, if you add up the ideas here, it's about a 12% chance that I can't live in peace because the other people, quite frankly, will not allow it. That does happen. It's about a 12% chance. That leaves how much of a probability that actually I'm much of the problem. Come on, somebody do the math. 100 minus 12. 88% probability that I'm actually the problem. I'm admitting along with my 10 folks, those 10 folks who took that focus group, when they said, I've struggled with living in harmony, what we're in effect admitting is that we're about 88% likely to be proud or to avoid humble influences or to be self-centered in our wisdom, or we're about 88% likely to repay evil for evil, or we're not actually thinking about what is best for all, or we're not doing what we've thought about that is best for all, or, or we're not even trying to live in peace. Thank goodness none of us are like that. Oh, wait. All 10 of my focus group are here today, aren't we? Listen, you want to refine relationships in the community, absorb these one another commands and get along. All God's people said? Let's live out our Philadelphia and our agapao in edification. Also, you'll see the next set in our notes. This is group number three. The commands to edify one another. Romans 15, repeated in Colossians 3, instruct one another. Uh, Ephesians 5, speak to one another. Beautiful, beautiful passage. Speak, it's a great song. Speak to one another. Speak to, 
one another, that one's always hard for me, with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, right? Colossians 3, admonish one another. Admonish is a fancy word that means kick them in the, in the fanny. Um, 1 Thessalonians 4 and, and 5, encourage each other. Hebrews 10 says the same thing. By the way, Hebrews 3 adds this, encourage one another daily. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, build each other up. And Hebrews 10, spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Turn over one page in your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We've been in chapter 4. Go to chapter 5 and let's read verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as you are already doing. Encourage and build each other up. I, I trust you know this. If you don't, I have a newsflash for you. Deconstruction and jealousy are the natural bent of fallen humanity. That's our nature. But we're called to teach, to speak Scripture, to build up lives. It's hard for us. Here's an example, okay? I took a few minutes and I built a little, um, a little, little temple of the Holy Spirit here. I, I built a little, a little house out of, uh, out of the old blocks at my house. If I, tell me now, come on, if I put this down there where everybody has to walk by it on their way out after the service, what is very, very likely to happen to my temple? It's going to get knocked out. It's just, you can't, you just, I mean, right now, some of you are wanting to, and you know what? If I put a sign on it that said, do not touch, I can guarantee you it will be knocked over. If you doubt me, just read the book of Galatians. It, it talks about that, right? That's how we're wired. We want to knock things down. This is what we do. And yet, and yet, by God's grace, we can do the opposite. We can build up instead of tear down. We can rebuild things that have been destroyed. We can be about the business of constructing lives, building people up. We really can edify each other. And I know, I know how we're responding to that. Our internal uh, Rocky the Squirrel voice, you know, your Bullwinkle voice in your head is saying, oh, Rocky, you can edify. And the Rocky voice is saying, but I never know the right thing to do or say, Bullwinkle. Which is a good point. I, Rocky, we have all felt like that, Right. Let me show you how a brilliant professor began to address that issue. What, what are, okay, you say edify. How do I do that? I think this is a good place to start. Sheldon Van Auken, again, a brilliant professor and author of what I feel, quite frankly, is one of the most beautiful books ever written, A Severe Mercy. And he says this, I think we're all so alone in what lies deepest in our souls, so unable to find the words and perhaps the courage to speak with unlocked hearts that we do not know at all that it's the same with others. Let's start there. Recognize that everybody's in the same boat. And, and then we understand that to really edify requires courage. It, it requires wisdom. To build somebody up, you've got to be bold enough to step out and do or say something. And yes, you do have to learn what to say or do. And it takes time. It takes some art. It takes some living. Sometimes the most edifying thing you can do is share a joke or tease someone. I'm totally serious. Sometimes that is the most edifying thing. Um, there's a young man in this church whom I really, really love, uh, a guy in his, in his 20s who lives with ulcerative colitis. Ulcerative colitis is a nasty disease, and it, 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 it comes and goes through a person's life. But a few years ago, we almost lost him. Uh, very, very serious, and, and he's been doing well. But I noticed on the prayer request that his wife had, uh, that you had put in a prayer request that we talked about, and I was very concerned that the ulcerative colitis is, is flaring up pretty badly. Um, so, Friday morning, 
I'm, I'm praying for this guy. It's on my prayer list, the people from the church. I'm praying for this guy. And then I finish, and I check the news real quickly. I pull up the website I use, uh, one of the ones for news. And I see the breaking news that Shinzo Abe, uh, the longest-serving prime minister in Japanese history, Shinzo Abe is retiring. Uh, he has lived all of his life with ulcerative colitis, just like our brother in Christ. And, and Mr. Abe has has really struggled with it, but he's had a very nice nine-year period, but it's gotten really, and he, look, he looked bad. It's gotten really bad. And he said, for my health, I've got to resign. And then, you're not going to, I am not making this up. This is amazing. I'm watching the translation across the bottom. I don't know Japanese. So I don't know if Prime Minister Abe said this, or it was just a very witty person translating into English. But this is what I read, scroll across the bottom of the screen. This has been a gut-wrenching decision. And when I quit laughing, I said, too soon? I mean, it was just, that was amazing. So I grabbed the clip, and, and, and I sent it to, to my friend in the church. And I said, hey, I was praying for you, and I thought you might enjoy this. And he wrote back, that's hilarious, right? That's edifying somebody. It doesn't make light of the illness. It puts the illness in perspective and shows that you're cared for. Now, other times, your encouragement needs to be more direct, you, you put out the effort to be at the finish line and to be there cheering, and it's, and it's more common. You're applauding someone. You're, you're encouraging them, right? And there are times when the most edifying thing that you can do is to admonish somebody, to kick them in the fanny. When, when they're starting to build in a wobbly fashion, you love them enough. It is a blessing to intervene and spur somebody toward healthy building and away from what is going to collapse. Edification is an art. It requires courage and wisdom. Now, what's the best way to develop courage and wisdom? The Bible. <laughs> there is nothing that will develop courage and wisdom in your life like knowledge of the Scripture. That's why we continually stress group Bible studies around here. Now, I want to go back to a thought because I, I know what you were thinking when I mentioned admonishment, kicking somebody in the fanny. In your, in your cynical Sergeant Rock imitation, you were saying, does, does conviction and correction ever really work, Pastor? I mean, don't the grunts just keep doing whatever stupid thing they were going to do anyway? Sarge, it's a great question, and, and yes, that does happen. But the seeds of Scripture remain embedded, and they are never wasted. God's Word is never returning void. Let me give you an example. Jordan. Jordan is a young man whose life was rendered very tragic by drug abuse. He was a good athlete. In fact, he was a very aspiring athlete, went to a Christian college, but, um, but made some very, very sinful life choices that got him kicked out of that college appropriately. And he nearly died. Regret nearly destroyed his life. Jordan's life was turned around. His turning point came from admonishment. You see, even though that, that college rightly expelled him, they stayed engaged with this kid. And a number of Christian people kept trying and kept trying and kept trying to engage in his life until finally one day the Lord broke through. Jordan put it like this. He said, I finally let go of my pride and let myself be built up. I heard the voice of my Father in heaven who reminded me that I am a child of the one true King. I am a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, by the way, you... You likely know this, but I just want to remind you what edification can do. Jordan went on to not only begin to live a healthy life, he went back and got a degree. And then he went back to the college that had expelled him, and he got a master's degree there. 
That's what edification can do. And by the way, you probably know Jordan's story, or many of you probably do, because there's a, there's a famous songwriter, a Christian songwriter named Matthew West, and he met Jordan, and with Jordan's permission, he put Jordan's story into a poetry form and made it a hit song. It, 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 here's part of it. It says, hello, my name is Regret. I'm pretty sure we've met. Every single day of your life, I'm the whisper inside, won't let you forget. Hello, my name is Defeat. I know you recognize me. Just when you think you can win, I drag you back down again until you've lost all belief. These are the voices. These are the lies, and I have believed them for the very last time. Hello, my name is Child of the One True King. I've been saved. I've been changed. I've been set free. Amazing Grace is a song I sing. Hello, my name is Child of the One True King. I am no longer defined by the wreckage behind. The one who makes all things new has proven it's true. Just look at my life. That's what can happen when we refine relationships through edification. All God's rocky people said, Amen. Amen. It takes to our final grouping of the one another's. Serve each other. As Bob Dylan sang so horribly, you're going to serve one another. Um, sorry, sang beautifully. I know some of you are Dylan fans. Astonishing. Great voice. <clears throat> <laughs> that was good. Stop lying to one another. That was nice. Thank you. Okay, these are the these are ones about serving. Instruct one another, Romans 15, Colossians 3. Speak to one another with some... Oh, that's the wrong one. That's what we should do. We need to do that. We live out. Now, here's the fourth set. Wash one another's feet. Um, that's what Jesus tells the disciples after he's cleaned their feet. That would... Probably the closest parallel today would be cleaning somebody's toilets. Okay? Uh, serve one another in love, Galatians 5. Galatians 6, carry each other's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. James 5, confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other. 1 Peter 4, offer hospitality to one another without what, everybody? Grumbling. What's the fancy Greek word for that? Better say it by golly. I just taught you that word. Say it again. Sinadzo. Thank you. Yeah. Each one should use whatever yet. 1 Peter 4.10, he has received to serve others. Now, we're just going to look at the First Peter passage for time. Here it is in its context, First Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Above all, maintain constant love for one another's sense. And he quotes Proverbs 10 here, love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without stenadzo, without complaining, just as each one has received a gift. Use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. Somebody wrote me last week a wonderful letter, and it contained this line. This was really insightful. It said, our family, lady wrote, said, our family works hard to have people over for meals together. We don't want practicing hospitality to remain a lost art, close quote. That is very wise. Now, look up here at the text. Do you see how verse 9 flows out of verse 8? Agape love, in verse 8, leads to hospitality that doesn't grumble. J.R.R. Tolkien's Bilbo Baggins illustrates this really nicely. Those of you that have read The Hobbit, um, when the dwarves first invade his home, Bilbo is outwardly polite, but inside he is, he is rather put out, right? But later, later, after he's gone through fire and water with these guys, after they have recognized that they are community and they, they are together, well, then, for the rest of his life, he enjoys hosting. Every time the dwarves go through, uh, Tolkien writes, he enjoys hosting and giving what he has been given to those dwarves. Think about yourself. When you, let's say you walk through the church after a youth activity, okay, and you see, you see messes and spills. 170 kids have been here, and there's messes and spills everywhere. What do you think? Seriously, what's your, what's your initial reaction? Are these your redeemed community partners whose feet you would gladly wash? Or... Are these those stinking messy kids that always mess everything up, right? Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not suggesting that people don't need to learn to clean up after themselves. That's, that's part of good edification. 
But when you're family, you can share those lessons without grumbling. In our house, um, I like to say I have one job on the ship, and um, I clean the dishes. Uh, thank the Lord, I actually get to do more than that. But, but after nearly every meal, I clean the pots and pans and the dishes. On occasion, we have people over all the time, a member of my family or somebody else will have had a between-meal snack, and they'll have left dirty dishes in my sink. Now, you saw the pronoun, right? As you could tell. Right? So, so I can, at that point, I can think, just such a drag, people make work for me, ungrateful, right? Or, or I can say, it is, a, it is an honor to practice, practice hospitality without grumbling, and I can clean them up. And by the way, I don't even need to say anything, unless, unless this happens to be someone who is a repeat offender, and I need to instruct them about being kind. But even, that, even then, I can do that with joy. Because it is a blessing to practice hospitality. Look again at verse 10. Look at verse 10. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. Just as we have tasks in our homes that allow us to, to go down the river together, so it's true in God's larger family. Please listen very carefully to this. If you aren't rowing along according to the way that God has equipped you, if you aren't using your gifts, then quite frankly, you are violating Scripture. Um, let me be very soft and gentle as, as I put this. You're a lazy bum, and you are wasting God's gifts, and you are, quite frankly, shaking your fist at the giver of all good things. I shudder to think how God will get your attention. There. I, that, that's as gently as I can put it. I, I can't imagine it being said less than that. Look, when you are online and you see an opportunity to serve in, in your church, wherever your church is, or you see it in the bulletin. Do you like that? Yeah, that's the favorite shirt of our communications director. Um, when you see something of an opportunity to serve, never, ever, ever think that is an appeal from need. There's never any need. Never any need. God has always and will always provide people who want to serve. People who want the pleasure of going downstream together and building up God's church. When you get offered the chance to help in ministry, you're not doing anyone a favor. When you say, yes, they're doing you a favor, giving you the chance. We're all commanded to serve. They're, they're blessing you by giving you an opportunity to refine relationships in Jesus' church. Anybody ever begs, any of you, wherever, you, wherever your churches are, if you ever beg anyone to help, you've got it totally backwards. You, you and I should be begging people to participate in organized ministry. Okay, time to set some plans. Look at the, look at the bottom of your notes. I was able to squeeze a few questions in there. Here's what I'd like you to do. I would encourage you to do what I did made for a very hard week, but it was very good. I would encourage you to think through these and write down your answers. Use them as a plan to help you refine your relationships in the church. Question number one, whom do I need to better love? I bet you you think of somebody immediately. Okay, what specific way? What, what Philadelphia do I need to learn, Theodidaskosk, so I can love that person? With whom do I need to get along? What in me, not them, what in me specifically needs to change for that to happen? Whom can I build up? How am I going to do so? And the last question, where can I best serve? How has God equipped me? Where do I need to use it? You work through this as the week comes. Let's pray right now for that. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters that we will love we know we are bound for heaven, but in this life, unless you return, no one gets out alive.
The thing that remains is how did we love? Lord, help us love by getting along and building up and serving. We can't do it, but you can. And we pray for that whole process. In Jesus' name, amen.